Hello, and welcome to the Kiskea Chapel Sermon Podcast. Kiskea Chapel is an international church in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where we equip English-speaking believers to expand God's kingdom in our community and beyond. For more information about Kiskea Chapel, you can visit us on our website at kiskeachapel.org. We hope you enjoy this message. How many of you have ever tried to build a house of cards? You know what I mean by that? A house of cards? Some of you tried to do, I'm not very good at this, and I, I don't honestly know if I can do this with my thumb all messed up, but I think, you know, people kind of get these cards and they, I really can't. Does anybody, can anybody do this that has a thumb that works? Anybody really good at this? Grace, can you do, come up here and build, a, build, build me a little level here. What's that? All right, you come over here too. I'm going to, let's, let's do a couple of these things. You try and build one. And Grace, you try to build one, and let's see how this works. I can't, I don't, it's amazing how much you need a thumb for, you know? Let's see if they can do this. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's tough. We'll give you a couple more seconds here to see what you do. In a minute, I'm going to put a picture on the screen of the guy who has the world record for this. Uh, to, to be fair, you, you are doing it in front of 200 people, so let's... Let's give you a little slack here. All right, I'm gonna set us. I'm gonna set the, the stopwatch here. All right, we're gonna give you 30 seconds and see how. See if we can get a level here. All right. Yeah, encourage them on, guys. Encourage them on. Yeah. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2. One. All right, let's give him a hand, guys. All right. Good job. Good job. You can leave him right there. You can leave him right there. Thank you, guys. Go ahead and have a seat. Did you know that there is a guy that has a world record for this? Let me see if I can see if the clicker's working here. There we go. Brian Berg had the world record in Dallas, Texas, October 16, 2007, 7.8 meters tall. you imagine that? That is pretty impressive. This guy also has the world record for the largest structure. So this one is the tallest one, 25 feet, 9 and 7 sixteenths inches. Uh, and then he also has the largest structure. So it's like this wide, kind of vast thing. I can't even remember how, how big it is. But it is, it is hard to do this. You can see, I mean, these guys, they had the strategy, right? You know, you kind of lean them together and, and you try your best and... And, and if you're good, if you get enough practice, you can, you can go up several levels. I mean, you're probably not going to get, you know, I mean, if you didn't have 200 people, you could probably do that, right? You know, uh, Grace, you could too. You would need a ladder. But, um, you know, but if you, if you work at it long enough and if you're relaxed and your arms aren't shaking, you can go up a couple levels without too much effort, right? <laughs> we... Oftentimes, as we seek to build lives of, of significance, we do so very carefully. We all want to have a life of significance. We all want our life to count. We all want to, to make an impact, right? And, and so we do that very, very strategically, very, very carefully. We make sure that we get the right degree and we make sure that we get 
the right opportunities and we make sure we get the right doors open in front of us and we do whatever we can to make sure that we get all the pieces in place so that we can build a life of significance. But the, the problem is, imagine what would happen if somebody went into that room and turned on a fan. <laughs> the guy would probably pass out, you know. <laughs> the problem is that when, when you build your life on a house of cards, one little movement Wow, come on, are you kidding me? I had this illustration all mapped out in my head and it doesn't. One little movement, one little blow of wind and the whole thing can come crashing down. If you read in your scriptures this week, we looked at the story of the Exodus. I want to talk about the story of the Exodus today because what we're going to see in the story of the Exodus is that this is, this is one of the primary events of the Old Testament. This is one of the critical stories of the Old Testament. You will see throughout the rest of the Old Testament and on into the New Testament, they are always referring back to this event. This is kind of the, the crux of, of the Old Testament. And what we're going to see in this story is that God demonstrates in no uncertain terms that only he is worthy of worship and he has come to rescue us. See, we want our lives to count. We want, we, we want to redeem our lives. And we think that by redeeming our lives, we have to build them carefully. We have to have the right degrees. We have to have the right opportunities. And if we walk through the doors in the right order, in the right way, we can redeem our lives and we can build a life of significance. But the problem is that once one little move knocks the whole thing down, what we're going to see is that the only one who can rescue, the only one who can redeem, the only one who is worthy of worship is God. The context for this story, Pastor Wawa gave us some good context for this Last week, the, the people of Israel have gone to live in the land of Egypt, right? You remember the story? There was a, 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 a famine in the land and Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt looking for food. Egypt had food and they went down there looking for food so that they could survive the famine. And when they went down there, they found out, lo and behold, that, that Jacob's son Joseph had basically become prime minister. And he was a well-respected man. He was a leader in the place. And so they were accorded great, a great place to live. They were set up really well. But then over time, the Pharaoh at that time died. And eventually they forgot who Joseph was. And in the meantime, the people of Israel are growing. People are having babies and, and the nation is growing. And, and over a period of 430 years, the people of Israel lived there in the land of Egypt. But for the vast majority of that time, they did not enjoy the privileges of being connected to a prime minister. Rather, they lived in slavery. They were treated horribly. They were treated brutally by Pharaoh, who up until this point in the Old Testament is the worst character the Bible has shown us. The most evil character the Bible has shown us up until this point in the story is Pharaoh. And we see that Pharaoh was treating the people of Israel horribly. And so the people of Israel were crying out for this period of 430 years, asking God to come and deliver them. And we find out through the story we looked at last week that God had already put in the works a deliverance plan. 
Remember there was this, there was this deal where all the people of Israel, the firstborn were being killed, but Moses's mother put him in a river to save him and Pharaoh's daughter herself ended up adopting him. And Moses therefore grew up in the house of Pharaoh. He was afforded the best education that could be found in that day. And he uh, uh, grew up in luxury, grew up in proximity to power. But Moses didn't forget who he was, right? And as you follow the story, you find out that Moses goes out one day to check on how his people are doing and he sees how mistreated they are and he reacts in emotion and he strikes down and kills an Egyptian. Remember the story there? And shortly after that, he finds out he's been caught. It wasn't something that was hidden. People are aware that it was him. And so he runs and he goes nankashe. He goes and hides. He goes to the desert. And for the next 40 years, at this point, by the way, when he kills the guy, he's 40 years old. He goes out into hiding. For the next 40 years, he's in hiding in the desert of, I can say it in French. I don't know if I can say it in English. Madian, Midian, Midian. He goes out in the desert in Midian. He's out there for 40 years. He gets married, starts having kids, and he goes from a guy who's in proximity to power, who's been afforded the best education in the land, and now he's taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. He's not even taking care of his own sheep. He's taking care of somebody else's sheep. He goes from being up here to being down here. In the first 40 years of his life, Moses learns that he is something. In the second 40 years of his life, he learns that he is nothing. And when he's finished learning that lesson, he's out in the desert one day, and this is what we talked about last week. He's out in the desert one day, and all of a sudden he sees this bush that is on fire, and he realizes the bush isn't being consumed. He said, what is, what is going on with this thing? And so he stops and looks at it, and all of a sudden, God calls him out from the bush and says, Moses, Moses, here I am. And this is the point in the story where God tells Moses what he's going to do with his life. At this point, Moses is 80 years old, and God lets him know that he is going to use him to deliver the people of Israel Finally, after 430 years from the bondage that they had found themselves in. And that's where we pick the story up now. If you have been reading this week in your, uh, in your Abide reading plan, this week we had you read Exodus chapter, chapters 4 through 12, which covers the vast part of, of the Exodus story. And you see, by the way, in, in, in chapter 3, that's when the burning bush thing happens. And one of the things that's interesting when Moses, uh, when, when God appears or when God calls to Moses from that bush, God introduces himself for the first time. Up until that point, people had primarily been calling God by the name Adonai, but at this point, God lets him know what his name really is. Let's see if we can go. This is what it is. This is the Hebrew spelling for what we would traditionally pronounce as Yahweh. Okay, these are the four Hebrew letter Hebrew letters Yod He Vav He. Okay, and so we typically say that Yahweh. Now this is the this is considered the the sacred name of God. The the, the fancy word that we put on this it's called the Tetragrammaton, which means uh, Tetra four means four letters. The Tetragrammaton. Um, and we traditionally pronounce this Yahweh, but the truth is we actually don't know how to pronounce it. 
Because when the Hebrew scriptures were written in the, uh, on the original text, they were just written as consonants. What you see here are just consonants. Yav, he, vav, he. Those are consonants. The whole Hebrew scriptures were written just in consonants. And then people later on, the, the scribes went in and added the vowels. And if you look in a Hebrew text today, in fact, if you want to see one, I've got one in my office. Uh, uh, they added vowel pointings underneath the letters and in between the letters. And so you'll see little dots and little lines and little, you know, apostrophes in different places. And the way Hebrews would read this, they would start from this way and go this way. And they would, so they would start in the top, go down, up, down, up, down. That's how Hebrews would read their, their alphabet. But again, in the original text, the vowels weren't there. And when they went to add the vowels, they weren't really sure what to do with this word, and they knew it was the sacred name of God, so they left it alone. Now, people over the years have added different vowels in there to help us uh, learn ways to be able to begin to pronounce it. And one of the words that we have, Jehovah, is, is, comes from adding a couple vowels in here and, and turning this into something that's a little bit more pronounceable. But again, that's, that's actually kind of a guess. We don't really know for sure if that's... That's great. So, so this is a sacred name of God, Yahweh the Tetragrammaton. If you are reading in your English Bible, by the way, if you, and we'll see this in a few minutes when I put another verse on the screen, as you're reading along, if you see the word Lord, and it starts with a capital letter and then is followed by lowercase letters, that is referring to the Hebrew word for Adonai, which is more of a general word for God, okay? And if you see the word Lord in all caps, that means that in the Hebrew, it was Yahweh, okay? So that's just something to pay attention to as, as you're reading uh, through your scriptures. But Moses, I mean, God introduces himself to Moses. This is the first time that God has introduced himself by his real holy name. And what we find is that this word means to be. God tells Moses, I am. Remember what he said? I am. Tell them I am sent you. He said, I am who I said I am. It's, it's, it's coming from the verb to be. Some people, some scholars have said that, that maybe a, a more fuller understanding of this word would be to understand him as the one who causes to be what exists. Okay, so in other words, all that is in existence comes from God. And they think that that may be part of what this name here uh, is referring to. But God introduces himself to Moses as Yahweh for the first time. And one of the things that's interesting about this is that it shows us the intimacy that God had with Moses. As you, as you work through the stories in the scripture where Moses appears, one of the things that we see is the phrase, God said to Moses. That appears about 93 times. It's just fascinating. How many of you have had the voice of God? Don't raise your hand because I don't. I was going to say, how many of you have heard the voice of God speak to you? God said to Luke. No, it hadn't, it hadn't happened yet. It might happen, I, you know, someday when I get to heaven. But the phrase God said to Moses appears 93 times. In other words, God and Moses, they were tight. God introduces himself for the first time. Moses is the, one to privilege, is the privileged one to learn his name. And then he says, God says to Moses. And what is Moses, I mean, what does God call Moses to do? He wants him to go and be the one who is going to facilitate the deliverance of his people. He says, I want you to go to Pharaoh, who, by the way, as we said before, is this cruel, evil, wicked, evil, wicked leader. I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to tell him to let my people go. 
How does Moses respond? Well, Moses is nervous, right? Moses is nervous. We said, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So God's coming to Moses. He's introducing himself for the first time. And he says, okay, I want to send you out. I'm going to do this. And Moses starts freaking out. Are you, are you sure? I don't have the skills to do this. And how does God respond? He says, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you should speak. God has called Moses to do this amazing thing. Moses is freaking out, and God says, it's okay. You don't need to worry because I'm the one that's going to do it for you. And that's an important lesson for us to learn. Those of us who serve in ministry, those of us who try to engage in ministry-type things, we need to understand that People who respond to God's call rely on God's resources. If God calls us to do something, we can count on him to supply the resources to do the thing that he has called us to do. A lot of people are afraid. They don't want to get involved in, in the things of God. They don't want to respond to the call, of, the call of God because they're worried about what it will take to get there. But people who respond to God's call depend on God's resources. It's, it's a shame. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the needs for the gospel across the world. And when we look at, at, at when, when a call is put out across the world and churches across the world for people to respond to missions, there was one study that said in the United States in an average year, 20,000 people respond to a call to missions by saying, yes, I will go. 20,000. When you take those 20,000 people and put them into the funnel, only 2% of them actually make it out to the mission field. What are the primary things that block people from going? Most of the time, they don't want to raise support. They're worried about funding. They're worried about this. They're worried about that. They're responding in the way Moses did. But people, this is a fundamental thing to understand, people who respond to God's call rely on God's resources. And this is just something that I want you to know um, uh, in passing. But uh, uh, Moses and God are tight. God introduces himself to Moses and he has called him to go do this. And then the story starts to ramp up. And if you read this story, you remember that we go through a series. God goes, I mean, Moses goes before Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses, right? And then God responds by bringing these miraculous plagues onto the land. Remember how this works? And before all of this started, God actually told Moses, look, you're going to go to Pharaoh. I'm going to equip you with what you need. I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to supply Aaron to help do some of the speaking. Uh, uh, but Pharaoh's not going to respond well. He says that I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, uh, what does that mean? But, but he sets him up for the understanding that he has called him to do something. He's going to supply the means to do it, but it's not going to be easy. Pharaoh's not going to respond well. And as, we, as the story moves along, it moves into something that, that I like to call God's flex. <laughs> How many of you have seen somebody at a gym who flex? Probably you could, yeah, he's doing it over there. That's right. See someone at a gym who works out, what do they do? They like to get in front of the mirror and flex their muscles, right? 
Um, you can tell. I, I do go to a gym now, but I've got a lot of work to do. Um, you're not going to see me flexing. But when we get into this section, what we see is God's flex. And it's fascinating because when you look at the people of Egypt in that day, these were people who were very, very religious. They were very, very religious. They had a lot of, of false gods, lowercase g gods, that they were worshiping, that they were sacrificing to or doing whatever to, to bring them protection or whatever from the things that they were facing. And one of the things that's fascinating in this story is as you work through the plagues, you find out that, the, that God specifically designed the plagues as a way to make a statement against the false gods that the people of Egypt were worshiping. Let's look at this. Here's the first plague. Remember the first plague happened in chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. What happened in this plague? God, uh, Moses throws his staff into the Nile River, and the Nile River turns into blood. And it's a bad deal because now they can't find any water to drink. All the fish inside the river are dying, and there's even... This, this, this situation where they're taking shovels and they're digging a little bit aside from the river, trying to see if they could find pure water over on the side, and they can't. It's blood there, too. The whole river turns to blood. And one of the things that's fascinating is at the time, the Egyptians were worshiping a god named Happy, another one named, that's kind of, I wonder if he was happy. I just, I just saw that. Uh, a god named Happy, another god named Isis, who were gods of the Nile. They depended on the Nile, by the way, to what? Irrigate crops and all of that kind of thing. So they were worshiping a god named Hapi and another god named Isis who would care for the Nile. There was another one named Kanam who would care for the fish in the Nile. So they would offer offerings to these gods so that the Nile would continue to do what it was supposed to do. So the fish would continue to provide them meat. And now all of a sudden, Yahweh shows up, I am who I am, and he in just a moment turns the river to blood and those, god, and those gods are found to be incapable. The next one we have is the frogs. The plague of the frogs, all of a sudden, all these frogs appear onto the land in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. And this was a direct smack against a god named Heket, who was a god who would, who would oversee the birth process, but he was represented by an image of a frog head. Okay, So here, here God is slapping that god around. And now we go to the gnats in chapter 8, verse 16 to 19. This attacked the god Set, who was the god of the desert. It was also attack, an attack on the priesthood. What are the gnats? The gnats are like a whole bunch of mosquito-type things that, that kind of swarmed over everything. And one of the things that's interesting, scholars say that this was also probably a direct attack on the Egyptian priesthood because the Egyptian priesthood, they would pride themselves in their their, 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 their vestal robes and their beautiful white linen things that they would wear in the process of offering sacrifices. But now all of a sudden they've got these mosquitoes that are everywhere and they can't keep their clothes clean anymore. And so God is showing that he is more powerful than these gods. And then we go to the flies, chapter 8, verse 20 to 32, which is an attack on the sun god. They depended on the sun to provide sun for crops. Uh, and also another god, the, I don't even know how to say that, Utachit. Fly, the fly god. Um, then we have the death of the livestock. This is plague number five, um, chapter nine, who was attacking the Hathor, the, cow, the cow-headed god. And it's interesting, in this particular plague, there was a distinction made, which means that, that, that Moses said, hey, we're going to do this plague, and what's going to happen is all the livestock of the people of Egypt are going to die, but God is going to save the livestock of the people of Israel. And so all of a sudden, the livestock are dead, and they go out and check, and they realize, lo and behold, the livestock of the people of Israel 
made it just fine. By the way, if you were Pharaoh and all these things are happening to you, how would you respond? I think I would tell the people to get out, right? Now we go to the plague of boils. They had these boils that would appear all over their skin and they were painful and they were itchy and they were oozing. And this was an attack on the God that they would worship, the God Sekhmet or the God Sun or the God Isis. All of these gods were related to uh, uh, protecting people from disease. So they would offer these sacrifices to these gods so that they wouldn't get sick. And here all of a sudden, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, is... They're not able to do anything against what he is able to do. Um, did I shut this off? Can you go to the next one for me? Just hit the button to the right there. There we go. The hail, uh, the, the, the hail plague, chapter 9. This hit the god, the god of Nut, who was, who was uh, over the sky. And then also Ostris which was over the crops. So not only did hail come down from the sky, but it destroyed all the crops on the ground. Let's go to the next one. Locusts, again, the locusts had swarmed in so thick that the sky was blocked and they weren't able to see the sky. So that was another uh, attack against Nut. And then Osiris, who was over the crops, the locusts came and ate all the crops. We go to the darkness in chapter 10 going after the sun god and the sky god again. And then finally, we get to the last one, the death of the firstborn. And there were gods related to regeneration and childbirth. But also, this was a, this was a plague that was designed to hit Pharaoh where it hurts. And this is the one where he took his firstborn son from him. By the way, Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh and worshipped his son as a god themselves. And so finally, in this tenth plague, God not just confronts their God, but actually removes him from the picture. You know, it's interesting. We can read this stuff, and, and, and it's interesting because the, the Egyptians, as they saw these things happening, they understood what was going on. They understood the point that God was making. And by the way, he was making a point not just for the Egyptians, but also for the people of Israel. Because you know, as you follow the story, the people of Israel had a problem with idolatry too. They go on and start worshiping the gods of the nations that they uh, end up uh, entering into, right? Um, so, you know, they knew what was going on. But you and I, you know, I, I don't know that there's anybody here this morning that is worshiping, you know, uh, Re, the, the sun god. Anybody here worshiping Re, the sun god? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, we don't worship Egyptian gods anymore, but we worship other things, don't we? That's one of the things that 2020 has really shown to us is that a lot of times people, they don't worship Egyptian gods, they don't worship Roman gods, but sometimes they worship the god of science. Sometimes they worship the god of medicine. And all of a sudden we've come into a situation over the past year where this global pandemic has brought the world to a halt and what, what, what's going on with science? They're starting to figure some of it out, but initially <laughs> they were pretty baffled. In medicine, how, how, did, how did that work? To this day, we don't really exactly know how to treat COVID-19. We've developed some things. We've learned some things. We've been able to have some more moderate success with treating someone who is sick. But one of the things that's fascinating about this disease is it could hit somebody who's perfectly healthy and somebody else who's 
who's sick and the person who's, who's, who's weak and sick, that person will, will survive and the person that's healthy all of a sudden is dead. You, you don't know how this is going to hit one person to the next. 2020 has, has shown us the limits of science. It's shown us the limits of medicine. But sometimes we also worship money, right? Sometimes we, we, we say, well, the solution to my problems is more money. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build bigger silos. I'm going to make sure I have a, a, a bigger uh, uh, savings account. And 2020 has shown the weakness of that. Retirement plans wiped out in a second. Payee luck, wiping out businesses that had been built up over the period of, of a decade, all of a sudden, gone. For us in Haiti, 2019, 2020 has shown us that science has limits, medicine has limits, finance has limits, democracy has limits. John Calvin has this phrase where he says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We don't worship Egyptian gods anymore, and so we can think, okay, well, we're in the clear, but the problem is, we're always developing things that we bow the need to. And God is showing us in this story that he, Yahweh, is the only God. He's the only one that is worthy of worship. And then he goes on in this last plague. It's interesting. As you're moving through this plague, the, the story is kind of clipping along. Some of these plagues are just covered in a couple, two, three, five Verses, But then when we get to the last plague, the story slows down. And he takes about a chapter or so to spell out the details of the last plague. And this is something that we call, uh, uh, well, this is where the firstborn were killed, but this is where the story of the Passover uh, is introduced. And what happened, you remember how it went. Um, the people of Israel were commanded to go out and sacrifice and take the blood of a lamb and place it and, and paint it on their doorpost. Remember how this works? And then the idea was that at midnight, the, the, all the firstborn in Egypt were going to be killed, but as the angel of death was moving through, if he saw the blood on the doorpost of a house, he would pass over that house and spare the occupants inside. That's how this, this uh, uh, was designed and then all of a sudden, you know, that night happened and all the firstborn, including the firstborn of Pharaoh himself, were killed, but the firstborn of the people of Israel were spared. See, it's interesting because this is, this is starting to develop a theme that the Bible will develop over time. I'm not going to spend too much time here, but it's important to think about this for a minute. And that is the theme that blood equals life. It's kind of a weird thing to think about. Why is the Old Testament so focused on blood? Why do we have so many animals dying? Why are we sprinkling blood um, everywhere? Um, because blood, it's, uh, Hebrews says in, uh, in chapter 9, verse 22 of the book of Hebrews, the text tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This is pointing all the way back to seven, something in Leviticus chapter 17, where God is first introducing the whole uh, uh, sacrificial system where we're um, blood. So here, sin is a, is a manifestation of death, right? The ultimate end of sin is what is death, Right? If we, the scripture is clear on this. Sin ultimately leads to death. Blood is life. And so in the sacrificial, Old Testament sacrificial system, animals were killed 
and animals were dying in the place of people who had sinned. Uh, scripture is clear that, that all of us have sinned, right? I don't know if everybody wants to admit that uh, this morning, but, but we need to understand that God is on a mission to rid the world of sin. But the truth is, in order for God to rid, rid the world of sin, he would have to get rid of all of us. Every one of us, if we look in the mirror, if we're honest with ourselves, we would say that we are a part of the problem. We have sinned, and as a result of that, by our sins, we are introducing death into the world in compounding Factors And in order for God to remove sin from the world, he'd have to remove, he would have to get rid of us. But, but the scripture tells us, and you know this as, this as the story continues on, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we see Jesus tells us that he has come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, now we're going back to the idea of blood again. Uh, the Bible uh, Project, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the Bible Project videos, but if you have any time, go on YouTube. The Bible Project videos are super, super good, and they're available in French too, by the way. Um, but the Bible Project describes atonement this way. It says, atonement, or what happened on the cross, in that atonement, uh, uh, Jesus paid the debt that we owed to God for messing up the world with our sin. See, a lot of times when we think about our sin, we think about just the impact that it has on us or just the impact that it has on our family. But we don't realize that when we sin, we are a contributing factor in messing up the world. That means that all the problems we see in the world, ultimately, they go back to us. But atonement was paid by Jesus dying on the cross, and the debt that we owed to God for messing up his world was finally and what we know is that on the cross, Jesus didn't just die, but three days later, he comes back to life, therefore breaking the curse that was on the world as a result of sin, and his life lives on. And his, his life is available to anyone who would accept it. See, in this last plague against the people of Israel, God was already setting up the image that blood on the doorpost would save the occupants of the people of, of, the, of the house inside and the blood on the beams of the cross saves those of us who are willing to accept that gift as well. But here's the thing. You might be tracking with me here. You might be nodding your head for, to these things. But you and I have to be willing to trust this. We have to be willing to believe. One of the things that's fascinating about this story, the Exodus, as you work through it, is that you see the, the degree to which Pharaoh's heart was hardened. In the first plague, uh, um, with the, the river turning into blood, we see Pharaoh responded. How did he respond? He didn't even listen to him. In the second plague, when the frogs showed up, Pharaoh says, okay, you can go as long as you take the frogs away. And as soon as Moses prayed for the frogs to go away, Pharaoh went back and said, never mind. In the third plague, the magicians, Pharaoh's magicians looked at what was happening and they said, hey man, you should probably pay attention to what these guys are doing. But Pharaoh did not listen. In the fourth plague, 
Pharaoh started to cave a little bit. He said, okay, well, maybe, maybe you guys say you want to go sacrifice in the desert. Maybe you could just sacrifice here in Egypt instead. And, and then he said, never mind, forget it. I want you to stay. In the fifth plague, he said no. In the sixth plague, he said no. Finally, as you look at the plagues, there's a shift here. In the, in the seventh plague, he says, okay, go. Then he says, never mind. In the eighth plague, he starts to cave again a little bit. He says, okay, maybe we'll just let the men go. And it's interesting, when you get to the eighth plague, in chapter 10, verse 16, this is where Pharaoh actually repents. He confesses that he has sinned against God, but he went back again. In the ninth plague, he says, okay, well, maybe I'll let the men, the women, and the children go, but I want to let the animals go. And then he relents again. And finally, at the tenth plague, when his own son is killed, he says, get out. And they leave. But even then, after they're leaving, after they leave, left, what happened? Pharaoh turns, changes his mind again and he begins, begins to pursue the people of Egypt. And as they're going through the river, remember they go through the river, uh, 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 the, the Red Sea, to go to the other side. They cross through on dry land and Pharaoh in his pride pursues them in his chariots. And right as he's in the middle of the Red Sea, all of a sudden at that moment, God releases the waters that he had held up and Pharaoh and his army are destroyed. It's fascinating when you read these plagues and you think about the massive level of destruction that was happening in his country. Whole crops wiped out, fisheries wiped out, massive pestilence and disease widespread, all these babies killed, yet still he refuses to relent. And you and I can look at that and we can call him an idiot, but the problem is... A lot of times we have a hard heart too. See, the thing with a hard heart, the problem with a hard heart is that it doesn't happen overnight. Generally, when you and I have our hearts hardened, it happens slowly over a period of time. One little decision at a time. And then next thing you know, we wake up a couple months down the road, a couple years down the road, and our heart is totally calcified to the things of God. Hard hearts are dangerous. And so the question I want you to think about this morning as I wrap up is this. Will you bow the knee to Yahweh? Will you bow the knee to Yahweh? See, Scripture takes this hard-hearted theme and continues to develop it over time. In Psalm 95, uh, the psalmist says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah on the day at Massa in the wilderness. What he's referring to here, by the way, is the people of Israel, shortly after they were delivered, they cross through the Red Sea, they get over to the other side, and then all of a sudden they start complaining too. It wasn't just Pharaoh's heart that was hard, but the people of Israel had a hard heart too. And, and, and the author of the Hebrews uh, uh, picks this up again. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So my question to you this morning is, I don't know what you're building your life with. 
You might be building your life on a platform of, of education. You might be building your life on a platform of a successful business. You might be building your life uh, 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 through the process of chache la vie. But are you willing to bow your knee before God and say, my life is yours, do with it what you want? Are you willing to accept God's method of redeeming your life through the sacrifice of his son? Or are you still going to try to build your life out of a house of cards? Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Hard-heartedness is dangerous because one of the things that's interesting you look at these plagues, plague one through six, you find it's Pharaoh that is hardening his own heart. It says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In other words, in plagues one through six, the opportunity was still available for Pharaoh to respond in repentance. He could have let the people go in those plagues and God would have spared him. But then when you get to plague seven, you see there's a hinge in the story. And now from plague 7, 8, 9, and 10, the text says that God hardened his heart. Pharaoh had a chance up to a point. And then God said, it's too late, buddy. If you have never bowed your knee to Yahweh before, today is the day. If you're trying to build your life or redeem your life with something other than the blood of Jesus, today is the day to turn. Tomorrow may be too late. Whatever it is you're looking at to redeem yourself, the question I want you to wrestle with this week is, will you stop and will you now bow the knee to Jesus? Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. We hope this message was helpful for you. If you're in Haiti, join us on Sunday mornings where English speakers from all backgrounds, missionaries, diplomats, Haitians, expats, come together to worship, to connect, and to have fellowship with one another. You can find more information about our location, our service times, and our Sunday school program for all ages at our website at kiskeachapel.org. Or shoot us an email at chapelq at gmail.com. That's chapelq at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.